Welcome to Raising Up Copts, a podcast about raising Coptic kids in Western culture, hosted by me, Madonna Lewindi, and Laura Michael. This week, we have a special guest with us. She's a practicing pediatrician, wife, mom of two kids, an avid reader and poet, and most recently, a published author. Her name is Sherry Shenouda, and we have some big questions for her. Oh my gosh, yes, do we ever, because... For myself, with my young kids, I find it so hard to make time for things that I love in this stage of life. But then I heard that Sherry, along with the list of all these other accomplishments, also managed to write an entire novel and have it published. I needed to know more. How did she manage it all? What did her days look like? What advice can she give to other parents who have hobbies and interests that are plainly just difficult to maintain along with work and and family? Yeah, but before we get into all of that, which definitely I'm with you, Madonna, I think it's like my life's dream to write a novel and I never seem to move the needle on it. So I'm going to pick her brain for all all the ways. But before that, we did want to talk a little bit about her book called The Lightkeeper, because it's actually launching this week through Ancient Faith Publishing. So what do you think, Madonna, about the novel? Oh my goodness. Okay. So I think Laura, I didn't really know what to expect going into it because I, I saw that it was published by ancient faith. So I expected it to be a very overtly uh, like Christian or Orthodox book, but it wasn't that way. And it was almost like pleasantly surprising because um, it was just this fantasy that you get drawn into And right from the get-go, when I was reading the first chapter, I remember being like, where is this going? I had zero predictions about where this was going. I didn't know who this this lightkeeper was or what kind of thing she was. It was very um, out there. And so right away, I was like, what is going on? I need to read more and figure out where this is going. (laughs) For sure. I think that's one of the things I also, when I read it first time, I was expecting some kind of like overt Christian message. But what I found instead was like a deep, rich, complex, like, um, you know, usually these books are so preachy. You know, you you feel like you're being preached at and someone is telling you do this, do that. Like, this is how you live a good Christian life, love God. But this, I think this book really revealed the mystery of our relationship with God and our relationship with our humanity in a way that was unexpected and so beautiful like the descriptions were so lovely you were telling me Madonna how much you liked the writing yes Um, yeah did you have like a favorite part or a favorite something I did but I don't know how to talk about it without giving it away (laughs) I know this book is all spoilers and so we're always terrified to say too much (laughs) I I will tell you and I will I will warn the the readers that it is the type of book that uh goes weaves in and out of timelines and that's kind of like a huge core factor in the entire novel is just the fact that it's not like this linear timeline. Um, And usually I find that very difficult to follow, but I appreciated that this was very fundamental to how the book was supposed to be um, digested is that it's, it's outside of time. And that was kind of like a main thing about it, but her descriptions in general, I mean, I felt like I was there. And I think it's no secret that it, you know, revolves a little bit around lighthouses, as you can see from the name of it, the title and the, the cover. I felt like I was there at every lighthouse. I, I could hear the birds. I could, I could smell the ocean. I could feel the cold water as she described it. I mean, it was really intriguing the way that she just 
And you could tell she did her research. That was one of the other things that truly impressed me. It was not just like, you know, your run of the mill. Hey, I was at the ocean or the, the waves crashed at my feet. No, it was like, I mean, down to the names of the birds, down to like the, the qualifications of the different storm types, like things like that. I think for me too, the other thing was the characters. I just finished a different fantasy novel where the characters were so shallow and unlikable and just, you just weren't introduced to them very much. And you really don't want to, like, I don't want to think about any of those characters ever again. I'm so glad that book is over. But with The Lightkeeper, (laughs) the characters stay with you and you really learn to care for them and care about their situations. And the book isn't full of a lot of characters, but we just spend, we get to know them so deeply. I think it makes such a big impression. And this is a really complex novel. I will say that. Um, I read this like on a road trip with my kids. I do not recommend reading it that way. (laughs) It's definitely something that I'm going to need to sit down and read again to really fully understand the depth and the width and and the height of, of everything in this novel. It had so many complex layers to the lightkeeper herself and everybody that she, you know, um, interacted with, you know, throughout this novel. I really feel like it's one of those books that the more you read it, the more times you get to know it, the more you'll pull out of it, the more you will relate, the more you will just, you know, gain from an understanding from what Sherry was trying to do through this novel. And again, I think that we, there's like a deep message that you can draw from it. I love what you said though about it not being, you know, one of the reviews, one of our friends, Phoebe, wrote a review for Amazon and she said, this is not a beach read, although it's probably nice to read it by the beach. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally true. Totally true. It's not like a light throwaway book, um, but, you know, uh, having that extra sensory experience of having the wind and the waves, which are so much a part of lighthouses. Um, it would be lovely. And actually it made me want to go and like reread the book by the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) And it actually made me really curious about lighthouses in general, because I've never really paid them that much attention or like, I knew what they were for, but I didn't really put into perspective how important they were in history. And I feel like this novel brought that to life too. So I've gained an appreciation for, for that. Um, if nothing else, you know, um, And so we're excited because we actually have Sherry coming on here with us shortly, and we're going to be interviewing her about her book and about um, also the process. So we plugged in her book, which is launching this week. Laura, can you tell us more about when that's expected? Yeah. So by the end of this week, so if you're listening this week, it should be out on Friday. It is listed already on Amazon, but uh, just the stock hasn't come in. Um, You can find it at copt.me slash lightkeeper. So C-O-P-T dot M-E slash lightkeeper. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. But we are excited to talk to Sherry. Yes. And I can't wait to just really pick her brain about how she managed to push this novel out of her brilliant mind into the world. Um, So yeah, take a listen. Sherry, welcome to Raising Up Cops. We are so glad to have you. And I just had to tell you that when I first heard about your book, the first thought that I had in my mind was a Coptic person wrote an entire novel. The pediatrician thing fit into the box. The author thing did not. So tell me, how did you feel about writing a book or coming onto that journey? Thank you for having me. Um, wow. It, so I've been writing ever since I can remember. I probably started my first story when I was in 
maybe elementary school. And my friend Veronica and I would just send each other little stories that we'd written. So I've, I've written a lot throughout the years and I've always felt like I was a writer even before I decided to be, um, to go to medical school. I actually wanted to be a mermaid, but that didn't work out. <laughs> so, so the pediatrician thing was sort of a, a backup career choice. Um, but I've always been a writer since I was little. And this is my third novel. So I've written two full novels before this. I've just not cleaned them up to submit them anywhere. Um, and they were, they, were, they were more like practice, I think. Um, but it just sort of happened organically for me. I write a lot of different things. Um, I've written, you know, poetry. I do advocacy works. So I've done some political advocacy for, for children and nonfiction like essays. Um, so this was an organic uh, process, I think, for me. But the beginning um, was kind of a dream that I had. And then that was maybe five minutes of the novel. And then the rest was just kind of a, a slog for the next four or five years. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it does it answer the fell question. into it. <laughs> This was a long time coming for you, which which helps a lot in understanding how you accomplished mm. something so amazing alongside all of your other roles in life. <laughs> and to add to that political advocacy, man, I don't even know what you don't do at this point. There's a lot that I don't do, Madonna. <laughs> I'm actually not good at a lot of things. I, I, I pick like three things that I'm interested in and I do them and then the other stuff I'm not good at and I'm okay with it. Oh. That's pretty good advice. So uh, when you said five years, were you, uh, um, you mean like five years from today? Was it like, continue, like um, I forgot the word, but you know, like all at once or were the five years spread out over decades or how did that work? Yeah, uh, the, fir the first small bit I wrote, I think I was pregnant with my first. Um, so maybe 2014, 20, 2015, 2015. Um, and then I probably finished it like 2019, maybe four years. Yeah. And then I spent about, about a year heavily editing. Um, and then I submitted it and it took maybe 18 months from submission to get an answer um, about whether, you know, it was a good fit for the publisher. Yeah. So yeah, like maybe a five or six year process, at least for me, I, I'm, I'm probably way slower than, than most, but that's how it worked for me. So Sherry, one of the questions that I'm dying to ask you is, I, so I feel like writing is a pretty essential part of your life and it's kind of always been there for you. Um, mm. So does it, like, how does your day look? Do you intentionally make time for it or do you just kind of squeeze it in whenever you can? I guess the question is a lot of us have hobbies, but with young kids yeah. who never get around to them. So what advice do you have to, to get along with your own hobbies? Oh. I'm, I'm not an expert on time management, but I can tell you what works for me. So I, um, I intentionally stink at a lot of things. Um, I, I'm not good at pop culture. I, I don't know what songs are playing. I don't know what movies are happening. Um, so I let a lot of things slide and I have a really small group of, of friends and, um, and family that mean a lot to me. So my family is a priority my clinical work is a priority. And then I try to make the writing a priority just because I think I'm a better mom and a better doctor if I write. Um, but then all the other stuff I'm not good at. So 
I kind of intentionally let a lot of things go. And I'm, I'm getting better at saying no thank you to things that are not on the small like priority list. Um, but as far as like what every day looks like, um, it, it usually looks like me chasing babies and like trying to survive probably what your day looks like. And then um, either I stay up late and do a little bit of writing or I wake up early and do writing. So I try to carve out time. Recently has, has been a little bit atypical for me, but I try to carve out time when I can. And then on the weekend, um, my husband Andrew is kind enough to take the kids for like a half day while I get some work done, some writing work done. Um, and then maybe once a year, I go to a cabin in the woods with my friend Veronica and we have no cell phone reception and we just write. So like, but that's like two days. So if, if that was the only time I wrote there wouldn't be another novel for 15 years. So I just, I, I, I think of it like the fragments of five loaves and two fish that were picked up by the, um, by the disciples. So that's how I manage to write is just little fragments of time whenever I can find them. And sometimes it's just while I'm nursing the baby, I'll jot something down or, you know, probably when, when you all get a chance to do creative work, it's kind of in between everything else. But I think, what I'm finding is that when I'm in the midst of a, of a larger work, like a novel, um, if I leave it for too long, it gets kind of stale. So for, for kind of a longer work, I feel like I have to at least come back to it every day for, for a really intense period. So I often do that in November with the National Novel Writing Month, and that gives me a boost. I've done that a few years in a row, and that really helps. Yeah, I wanted to know, because Madonna and I were sort of talking about this earlier, about how when you put something like a book that you've written, something that you've created out into the world, it makes you feel really like vulnerable and it's, you know, terrifying. So I yeah. kind of wanted to know, like for me personally, and maybe Madonna will appreciate this, like how did you gather the courage to send the book out into the world, send it to a publisher knowing that rejection is normal, natural, likely? How, how did mm. you go from this is yeah. my baby to let me share my baby? Yeah, poetry really helped me do that. So, so, for, so to publish poetry, um, there's, there's a, there are usually a bunch of like uh, contests every year and you, you submit and then you get a bunch of rejections. I actually read an article recently about a woman who tries to collect 100 rejections a year. So she aims for 100, which means she's submitting to like, I don't know, a whole lot more than that. And it, the very first time I got rejected for anything was so painful. And then it just got a little bit easier every time. I just got a rejection um, yesterday actually for a poetry manuscript. And um, I got a rejection the week before that. So I think just normalize rejection because it's part of the writing life and it, Every time I get rejected, um, I go back to the manuscript and I figure out if it needs to be edited, if there's nothing wrong with it and I just sent it to the wrong place because sometimes it's the audience and not the, the work itself. Um, just, it, it helps me to reflect every time I get a rejection. It, it's very helpful, actually. Not all of them, some are, some are just annoying, but then you just kind of like, you just learn from it and 
That's such wonderful advice. And you take it way more gracefully than I would. Because when I think of rejection, I think like dark, lonely corners with lots of tears. But you're saying it's just a part of what it is. <laughs> oh, the, oh the, there, they, there are tears, Madonna. Yeah. <laughs> there, are, there are lonely corners and tears. But then you just, um, no, no, then you kind of do it over and over again. So do your children, I'm curious what they see in their mom. I realize they're still young. How old are they again? <laughs> um, they're, Basil is five and Tobias is 18 months. Okay. Yesterday. So Tobias probably months. doesn't really understand what's happening, no. but Basil, is he like intrigued? Does he understand mom is like a writer? Like, does he get the gravity of that? Or how does he take the whole mom needs time to write thing? He hates it. He's, he's constantly saying, Mimi, stop writing poetry and come do Legos with me. Um, kids just want you to be present. I don't think he's really interested right now. Maybe one day it'll be interesting to him. But right now it's just more a barrier to Legos than anything else. That reminds me of something my son does or used to do. We used to have this inside joke between us about you know whether the laptop should have my lap or he should have my lap and so <laughs> at first it was like this very bitter thing where he'd be like shoving it off of me as if it was like a third child that he needed to um, compete with for attention but then eventually we learned to verbalize you know mommy I need to be in your lap not the laptop <laughs> that's great that's awesome so I realize like the word here is not the law but um in your opinion then do you think it's okay to just tell your kids like mommy just needs some time, daddy just needs some time to do something. Do you feel like that's a very normal thing to do? Yeah, I actually, there's, um, there's evidence to show that um, children of, in particular moms who, who work at whatever it is, you know, whether it's writing or um, outside the home, um, they actually grow up to be um, confident and it doesn't damage their sense of being cared for. So there's evidence to show that it's actually protective. Um, so when they see you taking care of yourself um, and if writing is self-care for you, even though it seems like you're taking time from them, I think setting that boundary is really helpful. And it also, I think, makes the time that you have with them better. I wanted to clarify that I am encouraging that. I wasn't trying to ask it like a question of judgment. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, no I, <laughs> yeah, but I also want our listeners to understand because I know that there's a lot of um, this or that, one or the other kind mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, culture when it comes to parenting mm -hmm. and, and being able to do what you need to do. And I, I agree mm -hmm. very much with what you said. I think it gives our kids something to strive for, to look forward to. And they see, you know, there's bigger things than just, um, even though the family obviously is a huge component and, and we value it, there is more to a person than just being a mom, a dad, um, a, an employee, or, you know, a writer for that matter. And I just want to put that out there. Yeah. yeah and I feel like mommy guilt is so real and maybe daddies have a guilt too, but I can only speak for myself. Mommy guilt is so real. And so it's very hard to take from them. Um, so I'm actually really encouraged to hear that even on the weekends, you take a few hours that are for you and for your writing. Um, you know, I might not be able to do that exactly the way that you do having someone that works weekends, but <laughs> it means it's a possibility. It means that maybe I need to feel less guilty when I leave them with Teta in the morning for a few hours so that I can do something. I think that's great. 
So Sherry, can you um, share with us what are some like big lessons learned? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but you know, if you're going through this process again or thinking about any of this again, what are some big lessons learned either about time management or about the actual writing process, whatever stands out to you? Mm. That's a great question. About the process of publication or the process of writing? Uh, the process of writing, because I know that maybe not everyone wants to publish a book, but they do have hobbies. And I'm looking mm -hmm. at it in terms of taking the time out to do the things that you love in light of having a job and having a family. Um, there's a there's a really good book on writing called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the fiction that she writes, but that book is is wonderful. And she says that for her, writing is how she processes the world and she's a better person and a better mom when she's writing. And if she doesn't write, um, she describes herself as like, like a border collie, a dog that doesn't have anything to do. And so it chews the couch that really resonated for me. So if your mind is not actively like engaged in something that you like and that you enjoy, it's probably destroying something. And I found that I'm a better all around like mom, uh, wife, uh, doctor, if I'm able to like take time for the writing. Um, and it also helps me figure out what I'm thinking. So we've been talking about mom guilt um, and I actually worked out some of the mom guilt in The Lightkeeper. You might not be able to like tell that that's exactly what it is, but there's this like tension between um, working at home, like being at home and then being like called away elsewhere and where she has to figure out if she's going to um, to leave and then miss time at home. That was mom guilt, by the way. Yeah, look at Madonna. My, my jaw is dropping. Nobody can see this video, but I am like, <laughs> now that you're saying that, it just hits me so much deeper. And I kept saying to Laura earlier that this is such a complex novel. And I know that it's one of those things that if I read it over and over and over again, I'll get something new from it each time. So thank you for sharing that because now I'm gonna go read all of that again. <laughs> Yeah, that was me sorting out some mom guilt because I work outside of the home um, for part of the week. And then for part of the week, I'm at home. You know, when you're home, you're missing time elsewhere. And when you're, you know, in the, and then the opposite. But I think we all do the best that we can. And I think trying to be present where we are for whatever time we have, you know, whether it's with my patients for that short period of time or with my kids for a short period of time. And then when I'm not with them, it's okay. I don't think about it. That helps me. I want us to get a little bit into the novel itself. Can you give us, I, we don't want to give too much away. So give us kind of your summary or your, um, how much you're willing to share about the novel. Okay. It's really hard to talk about with, without spoilers, isn't it? <laughs> um, so it's about a lighthouse keeper who is a time traveler. And at the beginning of the story, she has no free will. She's just sort of pulled through time and she ends up going to different lighthouses throughout time and she has a task to do there and she doesn't know often why she's there but maybe there's someone that needs help or the light needs to be lit um, and at the beginning of the story she buries a dead light keeper and it's kind of this like really difficult um, painful burial and she doesn't know why and and then she's stuck at his house for like six months and she doesn't want to be there because she doesn't like getting a sense of home um, and then from there, um, from there, it's hard not to talk about it without spoilers. Don't say it. <laughs> Don't spoil it. 
yeah but it's it's an exploration of um it's an it's a love story and it's an exploration of a marriage but it's also about um the beginning of my conversation with god about why why there's suffering in the world and the beginning of of my um my thoughts on time and how limited it is and how when we choose something we're also choosing not to do other things so that that we really have limitations and i think we don't like to talk about limitations because it's kind of not a nice word these days but um limitations are a fact of life and we don't have a lot of time and our time is it's not just limited but it's way way less than we think so she in in choosing and because eventually she does get a choice um she has to make a choice about what she's going to do with her limited time we were talking about how the characters were deep and gripping you know not every fantasy writer especially fantasies tend to be full of characters and then they're forgettable even if they have a name but i think that's something that's different in this book that Maybe there aren't a lot of named characters, but the ones that are there, you get to know really intimately. Actually, there was a couple of things I wanted to talk to you, Sherry, about, and that was one, your descriptions were impeccable. I mean, I could place myself in all the places that you wrote about, and I was telling Laura about this earlier, but I guess my question is, how much research went into this? Because you threw in (laughs) stuff that I was like, you have to be a, a seaman to know <laughs> this stuff, don't you? Like, oh yeah, I I'm a I'm a lighthouse nerd, but also I'm kind of a research nerd too. So I I researched the life out of that book, just because I was interested in lighthouses. Andrew would take me on like lighthouse tours. I got to meet some light keepers, and I got really nerdy with it. Yeah, it was fun. Whoa, that's I love amazing. that sort of thing. I always thought they were these like fantasy people, like they weren't real people in life, but turns out that they were real people. So that. (laughs) Well, most of the lighthouses are real. I I think most of them are real. There there are a couple, like the main one is not that one I made up. Um, And then a a few of the characters are real, but for the most part, it's fictional. The lighthouses themselves are real, except for two, I think. I researched a lot of different lighthouses and visited a whole bunch of them. I think actually I had sort of like a paradoxical reaction. It was so detailed and so um, like the act of keeping the light itself was was so well researched that I started to wonder if it was real. Like, is this really how it works? You know, and to think <laughs> that you did do that research and it, that is really how it works. <laughs> I'm certain though that I'm going to get an email from some like really like not some knowledgeable lighthouse at somebody who's gonna tell me that I got something wrong 100% that was our official disclaimer okay (laughs) Sherry is a pediatrician not a lighthouse keeper so there you go I did the best I could (laughs) so one of the things actually Madonna and I brought up is that the book you know is picked up by an um, orthodox Christian publisher but Mm. it's not overtly Mm. Christian Madonna do you want to add something to the question yeah, I mean, I guess I, um, it actually threw me off, if I'm being totally honest. When I was reading mm-hmm. the book, I kept waiting for the part where she was going to encounter God and everything was going to be right in the mm-hmm. world. But that didn't happen, which I appreciated, but also was kind of like, oh, but now what? <laughs> and so could you just tell <laughs> us a little bit more about, you know, I guess why you went that direction with it? And especially, you know, ancient faith seemed to find it 
orthodox enough, obviously, for them. So tell us more. Yeah, this is the first fantasy that they've published for adults. Um, yeah, I, I believe it is. But I, um, I think that fantasy is a really, um, it's a really deep vehicle for, for carrying truth without preaching. Um, you can, you, it can do a lot of heavy lifting, I think. So when you, not, I'm, I'm not comparing anything to C.S. Lewis or the Lord of the Rings, but if you were to read those stories, they don't, they don't overtly preach. Um, I mean, Aslan is as kind of overtly preaching as C.S. Lewis, at preachy as he gets, I think. But um, I, I just think fantasy can carry a lot of theology without, without being theological, if that makes any sense. So you see so it more as like an allegory, you know, for many things or not really? Hesitate to, to use the word allegory, but I, I understand why, why one would. It, it's a story. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy story. But I think you can, you can infer a lot of truth and you can make statements about reality from fantasy that would be really difficult to do if you were to, for instance, write a nonfiction book. So I, I, could, have, I could have written The Lightkeeper as a, as a nonfiction book about trauma and how we deal with trauma and how we question God about how fair he is and how we think we're sometimes more fair than God and about free will and why free will is, is difficult for us. And, but it didn't come out that way. It came out as a story. And I think the story can carry those truths without overtly being a manual about those things, if that makes sense. Oh, I love that. And I love that description. It's not overtly a manual. And I think each person with their experiences will probably draw from it what makes sense to them, which I think is the beauty of novels and just reading literature in general. So I really appreciate that. I recently read a novel, that, a fantasy novel that deliberately went out of its way to reject the Christian worldview or try to build a world without, without any kind of Christian undertones. And it was so shallow and empty. It was really incredible. Um, you know, characters lacked integrity. They lacked, it was just, there was nothing even to make them remotely likable. <laughs> like they, you know, mm. devoid of more, any kind of morality. Um, the world mm. sort of fell apart. So I think mm. it's kind of interesting to think that even just coming at it and recognizing and with an understanding of the Christian worldview adds a layer to the story. Yeah, I think there's a movement right now to to sort of to have these anti-heroes. Um, all of the stories that are coming out are about villains and how, you know, how relatable they are. But I don't think those stories hold up for very long. I don't think they withstand the test of time. So Sherry, I have to know, do you see yourself writing a sequel to this or is this an end closed book and we should move on and mourn the end of it? <laughs> uh, uh, it's a trilogy actually. Yeah. Oh, book two no! is done, Madonna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> book two is done. It's just really raw. I wanted to do that for myself. It was a little gift to myself before the Lightkeeper came out. That's amazing. I finished it. Yeah. I just felt like it would be easier to write now before there were any expectations. So book two is pretty much done. It's very different than book one. Different, but kind of in the same world. 
We, Laura and I agree that this could 100% be a movie. And so I think once <laughs> all three books come out, there's going to be like a mad rush to produce this in some way. And if not, I will do some backyard filming for myself if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I would love to see the backyard film version. It'd be so cool. Sherry, thank you so much for coming on with us. Can you tell us where we will be able to get your book? Where can we find it? Yes. Um, so it will be available on the Ancient Faith website, and it should be available um, tomorrow or Friday at the latest. There were some kind of COVID-related delays with shipping, um, and it will be available on Amazon and wherever people buy books. And then the audiobook should be coming soon. It's still not recorded, but it's, on, it's in the works. So for dates, depending on whoever's listening to this, that'll be May 20th, May 21st, 2021. Laura, do you have any final thoughts to add? Yeah, I just wanted to know if Sherry had like a final tip for parents who want to be creative, like what, what final piece of advice or takeaway would you like them to walk away with? There were a couple of things that I read recently that were really helpful. One is um, in Stephen King's book on writing, he talks about how he got this really big desk and he put it in the center of his office and he was just really excited about it. Um, and then after a time, he realized that his kids had nowhere to come and like hang out next to him. So he moved his desk off to the side. And in the center of the room, his kids would like come and hang out and watch TV and eat pizza and stuff. And then they grew up and moved away. And he now sits like in this little alcove on a small desk on the side of the room and like looks at that space. Um, our kids are young for a really short period of time and they really, they added a richness, I think, to, to all things in, in, in my life, at least. And so even though it's difficult to get work done when they're around, I think it enriches the work. And I heard the same thing from um, Ursula K. Le Guin, another writer. She wrote a lot of um, fantasy and science fiction. And she said that people who have like childcare, tons of it, and, you know, somebody watching the kids all day and making food, Maybe they can write more, but she she felt like her obligations and her limitations enriched her writing life. And I would totally agree. I think the limitations are helpful. Kind of like um when you're when you're writing poetry and you know you could do free verse or you could sort of limit yourself to a form. And sometimes limiting ourselves, I think, allows for a lot of creativity. So basically the kids are the magic spice in our writing. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever it is, it could be taking care of parents. It could be a, a really demanding job. It could be, could be service at church that you, you, you know, you're obligated to, but I think the limitations help. I think they force us to be creative with the time that's left over. And I think they enrich the writing. So I guess if we are going to encourage our listeners for anything, it's embrace the limitations of the demands of the home and of work and of everything else and let that fuel your time that you have to pursue your hobbies or pursue your interests or your time to yourself or whatever you need. I love that, Sherry. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. This was lovely. Thank you both. And with that being said, thank you, Sherry, for coming on. Thank you so much to all of you joining us today on this week's episode of Raising Up Cops. You can find us at raisingupcops.com or email us at raisingupcops at gmail.com. And we look forward to next time. 
Raising Up Cops is a podcast hosted by Laura Michael and Madonna Lowendi. None of the views expressed during this recording are the official stance of the Coptic Church or its hierarchy. These are purely our personal opinions, collected experiences, and organic discussions on selected topics. If you'd like to reach out with any questions or comments, please email raisingupcops at gmail.com or post on the Coptic Dad and Mom Parenting Community on Facebook.